You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now reading tonight is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. And we're going to read verses 1 through 12, Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 12. And if you're using the church Bible, it is on page 971, I think. Do not judge, says Jesus, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, we are come to the third of these three chapters in Matthew's gospel that uh, throughout most of the history of the church have been known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there is a rather similar sermon in the gospel according to Luke that's usually called the Sermon on the Plain for fairly obvious reasons. Uh, this one was preached on the side of a mountain, and the other one was preached on a flat piece of land. And it's fairly clear when you put these two sermons down beside each other that uh, there were times when the Lord Jesus used the same material when he was preaching and adapted it to different groups of people and to different places. But we have been studying the, the version of it that we find in Matthew's gospel, and I've suggested that uh, the first two chapters can be summarized under two big words. Uh, chapter 5, under the big word, fulfillment. Uh, Jesus is saying, that his own people are the fulfillment of all that God promised in the Old Testament. And as a result, 
they themselves in their own lives fulfill the way of life that God commanded for His people. And so, a good chunk of Matthew chapter 5 is taken up with the way in which the law of God is worked out and worked down into the lives of God's people. Then chapter 6, I suggested, could be summarized under the big word, Father. And uh, we've noted on a number of occasions the amazing change, it's a sea change that takes place between knowing God under the old covenant and now knowing God under the new covenant, where now we have a privilege that Old Testament believers didn't experience or enjoy as we do, that we are able to come to God and call Him the very same name that Jesus did when Jesus engaged His heavenly Father in prayer. And there is a word, I think, that summarizes the teaching in chapter 7. At first sight, chapter 7 looks as though it's the it's the kind of sermon we sometimes preach. We, we have two big points, and then because uh, we just have a jumble of thoughts, then all the jumbled thoughts come out towards the end. Uh, but there is a theme that runs through chapter 7, and that theme can be summarized, I think, by the one word, judgment. Now, when you hear the word judgment pronounced from a pulpit, you tend to think of only one thing. You have sinned, and you're going to face final judgment. But in the, the text of Matthew's gospel, in the use of the language of judgment in the New Testament, just like our own use of the word judgment, the word judgment is a very stretchable term. It means different things in different contexts. And what we are learning here in uh, Matthew chapter 7 is that the Christian believer learns to live his or her life before the face of God, conscious that the heavenly Father is watching us. And so, two things result. Uh, one is that we are conscious of His assessment on our lives. The other is that we look at the whole of our life and other people's lives from a completely different context. We look out on the life we live from our relationship with our Heavenly Father, and that transforms the, the way we engage in judgment as well as the way we think about God's judgment on our own lives. And so, in these verses we've read tonight, the, the idea of judgment is, I think, used in four rather different ways. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, the language of judgment is used as condemning. Uh, these are perhaps the best-known words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, the golden rule towards the end, and the words that begin in chapter 7. If you're a Christian, uh, and you make a comment on something, a negative comment on something, then you've probably heard somebody say, tut, tut, judge not, judge not. Now, we need to understand 
that there are many negative comments made in the New Testament. We need to understand Jesus made many negative comments. We need to understand that Jesus encouraged Christians to make negative comments. So, these words are not about thinking negatively about things that are wrong. These words are about playing God with respect to other people's lives. What Jesus is forbidding here is not that we distinguish between right and wrong, true and false, but that we judge other people's lives, that we condemn other people without knowing the reality of the situation. And this is clearly what he means because he says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, you are going to be judged whether you judge others or not. So, the logic Jesus is using here is this logic. Be very careful about how you speak about others, especially when you condemn them, because that itself will be the grounds for your condemnation. When I speak loosely and lightly of another, I wonder if you have experienced this. I've experienced it uh, too often, I think, in my Christian life. You're with a group of Christians, and somebody's name is mentioned, and immediately their name is mentioned. The first thing that is said about them is to judge them and condemn them. There is none of the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul does, whereas usually if he has something negative to say, he will look at the things that can be praised for which we can thank God in somebody else's life. And sadly, often as Christians, uh, we, someone's name comes up in conversation, and the first thing that is said is to cut them down and to condemn them. And Jesus is saying this, of course, against the background of what He has said negatively about the Pharisees, that this is one of the hallmarks of their lives. This is why He speaks to the disciples about this, and He says, now, if you do this kind of thing, you are a hypocrite, which is exactly the terminology He used about the Pharisees. Think about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, and there is the Pharisee praying about the qualities of his life, and he's thanking God he is not like other men, and he looks down at his nose at the tax collector who's come into the temple at the same time. I thank you, I'm not like him. Well, he doesn't know anything about him. This poor man can't raise his eyes to heaven. He's beating his breast. He's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God help him. The Pharisee is saying, I thank you. I'm not like him. Or think of the elder brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, who is actually the real focus of that parable, isn't he? Jesus makes that clear. Beginning of Luke 15, this parable is for people like the elder brother. Uh, What's the problem with the elder brother? It is that his younger brother has repented and come home. 
and all he can do is condemn. And actually, one of the things that uh, Jesus wants to do here is to, is to show us ourselves, uh, because the, the problem with the Pharisee in the temple, the problem with the elder brother in the parable was, of course, they were right. That's the problem. If you think you're right, then you're not able to see how wrong you are. And so, Jesus uses, I suppose, what we would call an illustration. I think it's a wee bit more like a political cartoon. He says, I want you to see what you look like. He says, you see somebody and you think to yourself, there is a speck in his eye and I am going to deal with that. And you have a plank of wood in your own eye and you come along and say, let me deal with that speck in your eye. I say, don't you see how foolish you look? You know, you're like a Dalek in Doctor Who trying to deal with a speck in somebody's eye. Oh, he says, you, you foolish person. Um, maybe this is just something preachers experience when they listen to other preachers. They think, they think sometimes, oh, this, this guy's making such a codswallop of this. And then you suddenly think, careful now, this is exactly what people must be thinking when I'm preaching. And you suddenly see yourself in the mirror in a completely different way, just as you have been bringing somebody else down because of their weakness and their faults and their inabilities. And suddenly, it's as though God shows you yourself in the mirror. And that's what Jesus is, is doing here. He is uh, He's dealing with that spirit that, that probably some of us have to greater degrees than others, where our first instinct about people, yes, people who are weak and people who are fail, our first instinct is to say something condemnatory about them. And Jesus is uh, he's showing us ourselves, and he's, he's calling us for what we really are. I remember as a teenager being very impressed reading the, the, uh, the biography of Robert Murray McChain when he says at one point in his diary, I've decided that if someone's name comes up in conversation and I am not able to say something praiseworthy about them, I will say nothing at all. That's a pretty good principle by which to live, isn't it? Um, that's something to remember during the course of this week. So, Jesus is speaking, first of all, about judgment as condemning. And perhaps lest we misunderstand what He's saying, He then goes on immediately to speak about judgment as discerning. Uh, do you notice when He moves to what we have as verse 6? It's, it's almost as though from one point of view, he's now saying the very reverse. Do not give dogs what is sacred, nor throw your perils to pigs. Now, he's not speaking about dogs. He's speaking about people. He's not speaking about pigs. He's speaking about people. 
and he's assuming that you are able to recognize people who are dogs and people who are pigs. So, on the one hand, he's saying we need to watch that, that spirit of condemnation of others, and yet on the other hand, we have got to grow in our ability to discern others, to, to understand what their spirit is, lest in our desire to serve them and to bring the gospel to them, we are throwing our perils before pigs. If you think about it, um, there, there was at least one occasion in Jesus' life, and probably two occasions in Jesus' life, in which in certain instances he must have been thinking to himself, this man is a pig, and I will not throw my perils before him. And certainly that's true in the lifestyle of the Apostle Paul. There are times when the Apostle Paul says, I will not preach the gospel to these people any longer. And this is what Jesus is, is counseling, and that general principle has all kinds of applications. In our Christian lives, we have, we've got to learn to discern the real spirit of the people to whom we speak, the people to whom we speak the gospel. And there are times when it is actually better to remain silent. Uh, you remember the, the, the words in the book of Proverbs, in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 26, for some people the most puzzling of all Proverbs, 26, 4, and 5. Answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Just they follow immediately after one another. Answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Well, where is the wisdom in that? That surely that's a contradiction. No. What it's saying is this: that it is the folly of the fool that you need to get hold of in order to, as it were. Uh, turn him upside down to point out his folly. So you answer a fool according to his folly. But on the other hand, there are times when the wisest thing to do with the fool is to say absolutely nothing. And sometimes that's the more difficult thing to do, isn't it? Um, you want to defend the gospel. And there are times when you need to say to yourself, with this fool, I should let the gospel defend itself. And it takes great discernment to be able to tell the difference, doesn't it? And sometimes we only learn that difference by, uh, as Jesus says here, the times when having thrown our perils to pigs, they trample our perils underfoot and then they turn and tear us to pieces. And because we have been so doggedly determined that we will show them in argument, at the end of the day, we've lost the argument, and we've lost the opportunity further to argue. We have destroyed the relationship by our determination to win the argument 
and the difficulty of repairing the relationship because we didn't keep our mouths shut. We've actually destroyed the relationship that might have made it possible in some future occasion to be able to speak to them about Christ. This is a huge lesson for us to learn, isn't it, in personal relationships, that sometimes you win by being defeated and silent rather than continuing to speak. So, there is a judgment in the form of condemning. There is a judgment in the form of discerning. And there's also a judgment now in a third sense in verses 7 to 11, judgment in the sense of understanding, judgment in the sense of, of getting the right picture of something, judgment in the sense of properly understanding something. And this is why Jesus moves on to these well-known words about asking and knocking and uh, receiving, and then this illustration about the nature of God. Now, now what's, the, what's the judgment here? It's, it's this, actually. How do you judge God? I mean, in this sense, what do you really think about God? What's your, what's your basic instinct about God? Are you utterly persuaded? And, and this is the point of Jesus' words, that if you ask, He will give you. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be opened to you. And Jesus uses this uh, illustration in the form of an argument. It was the kind of, kind of argument that the rabbis loved, where you argued from the lesser thing to the greater thing. Sometimes they like to argue from the greater thing to the lesser thing. But here Jesus uses the argument from the lesser thing to the greater thing. Look, He says, if, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children… Why do you think the Heavenly Father is the other way around? And you see, as we've seen before, this great emphasis on the Father, He really is getting to something very deep down in the Christian life. This, this deepest issue of all, do I really think of Him as a Father who will never, ever do me harm? Do I instinctively think of Him as a Father who in everything He does is giving me good gifts? And uh, my experience of my own life and my observation and listening to others is, no, we don't think that deep down instinctively. I may have met more Christians in this particular category than any other kind of Christian who, whenever anything has gone wrong in life, they immediately have asked the question, why is God against me? Why are these bad things happening to me? And what's, what's the response to that? It's the response to say, it's, they're not bad things, they don't really hurt. It's the response to say, well, just have more faith. No, the response is that, that, that we need to learn how to think clearly and properly about God Himself, that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to 
our children, then how much more will our Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? Do you really believe that? Is that your deepest instinct? That is the deepest instinct that Christ died to produce in your life, that in everything God does for me, in everything that He does providentially around me, He means to do me good because He's my Father. Now, Paul uses the argument from the greater to the lesser, you remember, in Romans 8, about the same point. If he, if he gave His Son for you, which is the great thing, then He'll not withhold the lesser things from you. But here he uses the argument the other way around. He says, now think about yourself. Think about your natural instincts. If you're a father to give good gifts to your children, then how much more the heavenly Father? So there is judgment as condemning. There is judgment as discerning. There is judgment as understanding And then in verse 12, there is judgment as a way of living. And there's a connection here. You notice in the the, uh, New International Version, it's the word so. Or if you've got the English Standard Version, it's probably the word therefore. And from time to time, I've said one of the challenges of reading the Sermon on the Mount and, and reading the New Testament in general is, why does the mind of the author move from saying this to saying this? What's the connection between what Jesus has said and then Him saying, therefore, so, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And I think the connection is this, that in our Christian lives, we constantly need to make judgments about things about which Scripture says nothing explicitly, okay? Most of the things in our lives and the circumstances of our lives, we're not able to turn to a verse of the Bible and say, this verse is speaking about this situation. Uh, the most obvious one is marriage, isn't it? You know, you would be taking a great risk if you thought, I'll choose the girl I'm going to marry by opening my Bible and poking my finger in a place. Um, the, the people who are married in this church are not able to give you chapter and verse as to why they married the person they married. Hey, that's a pretty major thing, isn't it? You know, you, 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 you marry somebody and you live with them and it goes on and on and on. That's a huge decision, and yet Scripture doesn't give us a direct command about the person we're supposed to marry, if we're supposed to marry. Now, think of all the other situations and issues in life where there isn't a specific statement in Scripture about how we are to respond, what we are to do. And what Jesus is teaching us here He's teaching us how to grow in judging what we are to do in situations about which the Bible gives us no specific direction. 
and he gives us this, this wonderful working principle that we often refer to as the golden rule. And notice, incidentally, if you were here yesterday, you would have heard David refer to another version of this as the silver rule. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to yourself. Why is that just the silver rule? Because all that tells you is what you shouldn't do what the golden rule, Jesus' principle, tells you is. Here is a principle that is applicable to situations in life about which God has not given us a specific command in Scripture so that we can judge what to do, so that we can discern what would be pleasing to God. And it's beautifully simple from one point of view, And from another point of view, it is, of course, all demanding. What is it? Well, it's this. In absolutely everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. You see what he's saying? He's saying we look to the law and the prophets to guide our life, but here's a situation in which the law and the prophets don't seem to give us any guidance. Well, he says, here is the principle that will lead you to fulfill all that the law and the prophets were given to us in order to help us to do. And what is it? I do to someone else what I would wish that other person to do to me. And if that's a Christian, it means I'm asking the great questions. The two great questions are, uh, what will tend most to the glory of God, and what is the wisest possible thing to do? And so here I'm in a situation, and I, I can't turn up my Bible and say, oh, here's a verse that speaks directly to this. How am I going to be guided? I do to others what does a godly person I would want them to do to me. I would want them to say, how can I, how can I serve Him in such a way that God will be glorified? How can I bless them in the wisest possible way? And then that's exactly what I'll do for them. That's how Jesus lived, isn't it? That's the driving principle of Jesus' life. Uh, He's meeting people, isn't he? He's meeting people all the time, and he doesn't have a direct command in Scripture as to, what am I supposed to do in this situation? So, what does he do? He says, what can I do for this person that will most glorify God? What can I do in this situation that will be the wisest possible thing to do for this person, because that's what I would want other people to do for me. Now, why is that so challenging? It's actually so challenging because it demands that I put that other person first. It's interesting the way Jesus puts it. It's it's actually, in some ways, it's very subtle to do for others what I would want them to do for me sounds perhaps as though I'm saying me first, but actually I'm saying you first. What would I like them to be able to do for me? Well, I remove myself 
from the situation. And now I'm willing to do that for them. That's what Paul says Jesus did. He didn't please himself, but he did what would be a blessing for us. He laid aside the, 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 the pleasure he had in the presence of his Father in order to answer the question, what, what would be best for them coming and dying for us, rising for us to be our Savior? And so, this is what it means to live as somebody who has learned to judge, who has learned by God's grace not to condemn, who has learned by God's grace how to discern, has learned by God's grace how to think about the Heavenly Father, and has learned by God's grace how to live in such a way that it becomes my instinct to think. I wonder what it would be that I would want them to do for me if I were in their shoes and in their situation. That's why Jesus, uh, in this whole section, right from chapter 5 onwards, has been saying, you know, the thing about the Christian life is that it goes down deeper and it lasts longer and it is so much more gracious than the lives of the Pharisees. And this is a challenge for us. We go out into the world, we, we mingle with one another. Here's, here's a driving principle for you. With everybody you meet, to have in your mind, how can I out-love Him? How can I out-please Him? And how can I live in such a way that they therefore will see a connection between the way I live and who Jesus is? There couldn't be many more simple things than that. And by the same token, there could be hardly anything that would be more challenging for us. So may God give us grace to live in this kind of judgment. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word to us, and again, we praise You for its variety, for the ways in which at times it is, it's unexpectedly practical to us, and we thank You for a passage like this that we know has so often been, been misunderstood and yet is so full of such basic Christian counsel. We want to confess to you that we have at times judged and condemned others, may even have done that with others in this room, and we are so ashamed of ourselves that we have been quick to self-righteousness and slow to graciousness. And some of us have found ourselves in terrible messes because we have been so undiscerning so unwise, insisted on speaking when we should have remained silent. We know, Father, that for many of us, the, our failure is that we are silent when we should speak, but we have often spoken when we know we should have remained silent and lacked the discipline of grace 
and the trust in your sovereignty and the long-term view of a relationship and found a broken relationship so hard to restore because we have insisted on speaking. And we're conscious also, Father, that we have not always had the disposition towards You as our Heavenly Father that You really deserve, knowing in every situation that You're a tender Father, knowing that Your wisdom is greater than ours, knowing that what You are doing is far, far, far bigger than the answer we want to the question, why are You doing this to us? And we know, Father, also how we need to learn what it is to give ourselves to others and to think only out of ourselves for the sake of thinking about others. And so we pray that You would deliver us from seeing others as so, so many planets that circulate round our sun, and give us grace so to live that we may treat others as the sun, and indeed learn to treat others the way we would treat You, Lord Jesus, knowing that You have taught us that inasmuch as You have done it to one of the least of these, Your brothers, we have done it to You. And so we pray that in our fellowship together there may be a growing sweetness, and as we, as we are spread throughout the city in our individual lives with people there, there may be a sense in our lives that they will recognize that we too must have been with Jesus. So hear us and bring these things to pass, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.